Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is dancer, choreographer, teacher, businesswoman, and health and wellness expert, Tanya Marie Amos. raised in San Francisco and began her movement career in childhood as a competitive gymnast under Russian coaches. She received a BA in cultural anthropology from UC Berkeley, then trained for four years on full scholarship at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Center. She then danced professionally in New York for 15 years, performing with Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and Donald Byrd, and was a member of Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble, Footprints, and Amy Pivar Dances. After retiring from concert dance, she moved to the Bay Area and founded Aspire Pilates Center in Concord, where she quickly racked up a string of awards, including Small Business of the Year, Best Pilates Studio, Best Female Entrepreneur, Best Woman-Owned Business, and more. She also wrote a health and wellness column and is finishing up a book on foot pain prevention and recovery. In 2009, together with her husband, Donald Martin Jr., she founded Grown Women Dance Collective, a dance company made up of internationally respected dancers in their 40s and 50s who are veterans of the nation's top professional dance companies. Grown Women Dance Collective is devoted to creating cross-cultural, intergenerational, and cross-class connections, encouraging dialogue, thought, and action, and building cross-racial alliances through concert dance and wellness programs. Hi, Tanya. Hi. That amazing intro. That was amazing. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I'm a little biased, but I really like your name. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I'm a big fan of your name too. Thank you for having me here today. Thanks so much for being here. I'd love to start by hearing a bit about your journey as a dancer. I know you started training seriously in childhood and you faced a lot of discrimination as a black dancer pretty much from the beginning. Do you you want to talk a bit about your journey? Sure. So I grew up in San Francisco in the Sunnydale district, Sunnydale in the house. Um, And I started with a very strange dichotomy. So in my neighborhood, there was often no running water, no electricity, no food. And yet I went to this fancy schmancy private school in Hillsboro. And there were three children of color in the entire school. This is the 70s and 80s. And it was a very strange dual existence. Go to school and people had these big giant houses with pillars and 18 burners and servants. And, you know, most people in the school were pretty cold to me. It was a pretty um, alien type existence being there. Had some friends, but I also got beat up a lot. Um, but then I would go home to my my neighborhood, and again, there was no electricity, running water, or food very often. But it was warm, it was supportive, it was loving. You know, we played um, high jump in the streets and and opened 
fire hydrants and climb trees and rode down hills on bicycles with her eyes closed. I often wonder how I survived my childhood going back as an adult and looking at that hill that we drove down with no eyes year after year. So amazing, amazing childhood, incredible parents that they decided really early to make sure that their children were in activities to, quote, break the cycle. The whole idea was education is the great, um, I'm not going to say leveler of the playing field, but gives you a much better shot. And so my parents worked really, really hard. I don't know how they did it, but you know, we went to all these fancy schmancy private schools, even though we didn't have electricity or running water. I was in ballet classes. I was in acting classes. Most people didn't know that I'd be in rehearsals hungry, you know, having a nickel or having 25 cents and taking three buses to get to the other side of the city, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But so dance from a young age was really, really important to me. I started as a gymnast Our Russian coaches, when they first came over in the 70s and 80s, really brought the art of gymnastics into the country, meaning we had lots of ballet classes. So we had our ballet coaches and the ballet coaches, whether I was in a dance studio or a gymnastics gym, were always like, oh, my goodness, because I was this little tiny, tiny dancer. I was allergic to gluten and we didn't know it at the time. (laughs) So I wasn't absorbing my foods. I was 42 pounds through the seventh grade. What that means in the dance world where unfortunately anorexia is actually looked at as a good thing. They saw this little tiny body that had great facility. I could do crazy things with my legs and I had amazing flexibility. And these Russian teachers, when they first came into the country, they were really nice to me. So I found that American teachers were really quite horrible to me. The -hmm. British teachers were neutral to nice and the Russian teachers were just amazing. So I got some really great ballet training from an early age. I was actually the first child of color at the San Francisco Ballet in the 70s. Years later, a handful of kids came in at the same time. They threatened to burn the building down because, you know, there can't be an Asian Clara. Uh, One of these women ended up my roommate in New York when I moved to New York. So I danced at San Francisco Ballet and many other ballet academies. I was never allowed on stage. Um, It was the 70s. It was the early 80s. We were actually explicitly told that Blacks could not be on stage. That is so contrary to the image of San Francisco that people... Yeah, and I always say that there, there are two, potentially three San Francisco's, so... Talking to white folks over the years, people would say, oh my God, I love San Francisco. It's so amazing. It's so liberal. And so I grew up on the other side of the city where the police came into our neighborhood for fun and beat and sexually assaulted people. So anybody actually thinks that San Francisco is actually this uh, progressive utopia didn't live in my neighborhood. So I bounced around from studio to studio over the years and my parents were amazing. They, you know, at that age, you don't want your children to become, become crushed, right? They supported me. They loved on me, but they didn't actually tell me from this very young age, what was going on. They knew I'd figured out soon and they gave me lots of support, but they didn't tell me about a lot of those conversations that were happening behind closed doors, but I saw it over and over and over. Every ballet dancer does not cracker. You start with a party scene and the next year, you know, you're a a soldier or a a mouse. And then sooner or later, you're doing major roles. But I was that kid that just did not. And I was always the only kid in a class that that didn't happen with. 
So at, at a certain point, we ended up in, um, my parents drove me to Walnut Creek to the ballet school with Lorraine Fender. Lorraine was amazing. She had just come in from the UK. So she had a more progressive way of looking at things. And the kids were awful to me, but she was really wonderful. And she's like, of, of course you can be on stage, dear. You're beautiful. So I did a lot of performing there. Um, she chose not to do the Nutcracker. She had a different holiday uh, piece. My mom, um, this is pre-BART. So my parents, with one car back in the 70s and 80s, are driving us to school in Hillsboro in San Francisco, and then driving us to Walnut Creek for ballet at night. It was insane. Wow. So my mom got pregnant with my baby sister. My baby sister is my, my world. I always say I don't have to have babies because I helped raise my baby sister. But we ended up back in San Francisco because my mom couldn't do the drive anymore. So at that point, there was a teacher who people said, well, she's really progressive. Yeah, I know you were going to plan on going home and not auditioning for Nutcracker, but you know, talk to her, see if you can dance. So I went and talked to her and I said, Miss um, Lenova, who had an incredible boarding school for ballet dancers back in the day. And I said, well, I wasn't going to audition today. And she said, why not, dear? I said, well, because Blacks can't be on stage. We can't do Nutcracker. I was 12 and I knew this. She said, nonsense, that's not true, dear. There's a Black in the Nutcracker. And I got really excited. Oh, there's a Black person in the Nutcracker? She said, yeah, there's a Black snowflake. Oh, but dear, we already have our Black this year. Come back next year. And, and she was the person that was willing to go there, right? This is pre-Alonzo. I've never seen another Black dancer. So age 13, you start to realize what you look like in the world. You're starting to get beat in the face for the first time with what's happening and where you stand and where you don't stand and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And this, I call it the racial shame starts kicking in for the first time, like really starting to articulate it in your brain. And um, a teacher told me that my hair was too ethnic and to not come back until I did something with my ethnic hair. I never told my mom, stop going to ballet. I had never seen Dance Out of Harlem. Representation is really important, right? This is like 1982. There's no internet. I'd never seen dancers that looked like me. And so um, I kind of crawled off into the sunset and stopped dancing. And my mom kept saying, why aren't you going to ballet? And I was like, mommy, I don't want you. I don't want you. Please don't make me go. And she's like, you love ballet. And then years later, I told her this years later, she had a fit. She's like, ah, if you had told me, um, <laughs> but I didn't tell her. And then my, my uh, junior year of college, being in college was a big deal because I'm the first person in my lineage since slavery to go to college. And I always knew, right, this is how you break the cycle. So I'm in college. And in one year, Alvin Ailey, Dancer of Harlem, Garth Fagan, and Bill T. Jones came through. And for the first time, I had seen these major, you know, incredible, beautiful, grounding images of dancers that look like me. I lost it. Um, Bill T. Jones, during Uncle Tom's Cabin, he um, lifted a woman by her ankles and tore off her shirt and beat her on stage. And I lost it. I'm in the middle of a theater. I'm probably the one, the only brown people in the theater with my $5 rush ticket. And I'm bawling, I'm bawling. And at that moment, I realized that you could use arts, you could use dance for social justice. And I was done. And so I did everything in my power to hurry up and get out of school. Every summer, I went off to New York. And then I graduated. I tell people, do not try this at home. But I ran off to New York with $200 in my pocket, no place to live and no job. Gotta dance. <laughs> and, um, I was like, I gotta go now because I was um, 23, passing as 19. And I had to go. So I showed up and, and lucky me, um, all of that ballet training that I had in my body from a young age, Alvin Ailey, 
you know, I showed up to the scholarship audition after they invited me in California and it was kind of crazy. I hadn't danced in years and they saw the potential and I got a full scholarship and I defended that scholarship. I was there for four years and um, it was life-changing. It was life-changing and my ability to go back and find that love and that ability to go back and actually still have a professional career after having taken seven years off in my formative years is kind of nuts. And, and I owe it to Miss Jefferson and the Ailey School for believing in me and, mm. and my, my gall for dropping my age and not telling anybody how old I was. <laughs> and there was no internet, so nobody can, nobody can Google your name and find out how old you are. <laughs> Good for you. Well, it shouldn't matter, right? What should matter is what they see, not your actual chronological age. Exactly. Can you dance? You can dance. Let's train you. So that is pretty unusual, right? To take that amount of time off. And that's almost impossible. Wow. But it's a testament to how solid my training was in my early years and my deep drive and need. You know, we in the dance world, we have that phrase dance or die right? I had a deep need to do it. And luckily I had had such great technical training from a young age. I was able to go back and get it Mm. and then beyond, right? Because once you move to New York city, you've got the best of the best teachers on the planet and, you know, digging through your technique and fixing it and refining it. And then being exposed to Horton and Graham and Dunham, you know, these incredible modern techniques that aren't even, the surface isn't even scratched on the West Coast. And being in an environment where Black dance was celebrated was a really empowering, empowering place. Mm -hmm. When did you become a choreographer? Were you choreographing at that time also, (laughs) or did that come later? I don't know how this happened, actually. Um, I went to New York thinking I was going to dance for two years and come home and be a civil rights attorney. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I didn't understand that the dance world sucks you in (laughs) and doesn't let you go. So I moved back home after spending 15 years dancing there. I don't know how two years turned into 15, but it did. Mm. And I opened up my Pilates studio because I thought you grow up and you stop being a dancer, Mm. right? It's all of these images that we have all of the, the framework that's set up in the dance world is for young people. And as we see now, if you take care of your body and your mind, because the dance world is really insane in a lot of ways, if you take care of your body and your mind, you can have a long career now. But traditionally, if you weren't in a company by a very you know young age, that was kind of it. Things are changing. Things are progressing. But even then, you know, you've got a handful of people that are dancing older and most people leave in their 20s, right? So I believe the height, because that's really kind of what it's been traditionally, at least in the US, in this kind of concert dance world. So I came back and I I said, okay, well, I've got to be a grown-up now. And I had a career-ending surgery. I had a huge abdominal surgery. And I know firsthand it takes two years to rehab to be strong enough to go back and dance after a major abdominal surgery. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm not good at anything else. What am I going to do? I'm a dancer. And um <laughs> I had too much time on my hands. It was, I didn't have a TV when I first got here. Thank goodness. I hadn't discovered Facebook yet, which we, you know, that will take, you know, years off your life just staring at that screen. And I had, I had surgery. So I had ice in my belly and I had six anatomy books open. And I thought, I'm going to open a Pilates studio. 
And uh, my husband's super supportive. And he said, baby, you know, you can't just open a business. You have to talk about your LOI and, you know, ROI and all of these fancy. I was like, what are you talking about? And he was really sweet. He was really patient. And he he said, you have to have a business plan. And I said, what's a business plan? And he sat down. He gave me the five minute version of what a business plan was. And I was like, uh-huh. Okay. Okay. And I started, we had Google back then, but I started Googling. My shoulders were up to my ears and I was pulling from this and pulling this, doing all this research. And three days later, I throw a bunch of scraps of paper in his lap, napkins. And, and he said, what is this? I said, it's my business plan. Read it, read it, read it. And he's like, oh my God, he's picking up these little pieces of paper and napkins. And he's like, this is really good. He's like, you can make money doing this. I didn't know at the time my business plan was wrong. You don't know until you start, right? But, you know, ignorance is bliss. And if I didn't think I could do it, I wouldn't have done it. So I opened the studio with six weeks. Concept to opening day. Giant pair of scissors. Amazing. Crazy. (laughs) So I'm opening the studio. I'm figuring out how to run a business. And what do I know about business? Next thing you know, my business is on track and I'm winning all these fancy awards and me and my husband are joking. We're like, how do I keep winning awards? Like (laughs) dancer here, right? But artists are no joke. We're creative. We're smart. We work our butts off. We're not afraid of pain. We're not afraid of being broke, right? So we just figure it out. So my studio is coming together, it's on track and I'm starting to get really antsy. It's like, I need to do something artistic. And in 2009, we were losing a lot of really incredible people in the African-American community. So between 2006 and 2009, we had lost Coretta Scott King. We had lost Ossie Davis, Gregory Hines, Rosa Parks. And some of these people were passing and really being celebrated. And some of these people were passing and nobody noticed they passed. And I was like, this is important because of these people's contributions in a world that didn't love them, but loved their art. They created a space for us to see each other, see ourselves in a new light, created bridges, created a sense of power in our community and self-empowerment in our community. And I was like, these people have to be honored. And in 2009, we lost most of our Juneteenth celebrations. Now, luckily, they've had a huge resurgence, but during that time period, counties were saying, or insurance companies were saying that they didn't want to insure them. Kind of like rap concerts back in the day, suddenly Juneteenth celebrations, which are usually people walking around outside, eating good food, hanging out with their families, listening to music, and getting blood pressure checks, suddenly they didn't want to insure these celebrations. So I was like, okay, so we're going to do a Juneteenth celebration because we need our Juneteenth celebrations to bring people together, to celebrate, to talk about our history, to talk about resilience and joy and self-empowerment and create community. And these people need to be honored. So that's how the concert started. And then what am I going to put on stage? (laughs) Wait a minute. Who's going to choreograph this? And I never in a million years thought I could choreograph But guess what? You're about to have people staring at you and you got to put something on stage and nobody's coming to save you. (laughs) Did you then, was it collaborative or did you? Yes. Yes. So when we first started, really good friends of mine, Michelle Ned, Marissa Castillo, and Eurydice Ross. These are all friends from way back in the day. We got together and Michelle and I were saying, these people need to be honored. 
And it was a little naive. We're like, let's put on a show. We could get a theater for $300. Uh, How could be that way when you're starting? You know? <laughs> right? If you knew all the work that would be involved, Never. you just have to leave. Right? <laughs> that's my studio and that's my nonprofit. Like, no way. You go and put on a show for $300? That, that's really what it, we thought it was. So we put on this show and it was amazing and it was really impactful. And we're like, how did we do that? And so how it worked is each one of us choreographed a solo on ourselves. And then Michelle put together this incredible group piece. So fast forward, we're doing this year after year. And then we had this really bad situation in, in 2012 where the Willows Theater went out of business and took our entire box office. That almost put us under... And so we took a year off because I was trying to figure out how to keep our heads above water and Aspire Pilates Center. My studio actually saved us. And we almost dragged the studio under that year trying to recoup those costs. And then when we came back in 2014, we'd had such a huge shakeup. I was the only person that was still crazy enough to do this project. And so Michelle and Marissa were super supportive and they said, this is our baby, go forth with it, but we have to live. So at that point, I was the only person left and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't dance eight pieces, 10 pieces, 12 pieces by myself. So at that point, I started bringing in my, my incredible friends from my dance career. So we always had one or two guest artists, but now I bring my friends in and these are all people that we've worked together for many years in the dance world. And they're dancers from Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. They're from Dance Theater of Harlem. They're from Martha Graham, Cleo Parker Robinson, Dayton Contemporary. I mean, these are major, major dancers that were exquisite in their 20s and 30s and are even more exquisite now because they have life experience. And so for the concert, each one of them brings a solo, but then somebody's got to do the group pieces. So I just figured it out. And it turns out they're really impactful and everybody flies in on Wednesday night. I teach each piece for an hour mm-hmm. and then I clean the pieces for a half hour on Friday. So Thursday, we 12 hours, including tech. And then Friday, we have 12 hours, including tech. So each piece only gets an hour and a half of mirror time. And then on Saturday we perform it. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing on so many levels. <laughs> and all of these dancers are in their late forties or fifties. So these are people that are grandmas and grandpas in the dance world. And they bring, you know, I say we bring lineage with us, right? We have our ancestors behind us. And then we have the people that have just recently become ancestors. People like Donald McHale and uh, Catherine Dunham, Tally Beatty, right? We're standing on their shoulders because most of us have worked with these incredible artists throughout our careers. Unfortunately, the generation right before us, many of them were lost during the AIDS epidemic. So we lost some really incredible voices in the arts community. So we went from our ancestors kind of to us. There's a few people above us, but our generation you know, knock on wood, we're still standing. And then children for the next generation and beyond. So we're kind of this, this keeper of black dance in our bodies and keeper of cultural knowledge and keeper of community. And it's really beautiful because you have these dancers that have, I did the math one year, it's over 400 years of experience on that stage. And we all realize how important and how beautiful 
and how impactful and inspiring this project is. And we, we bring it, <laughs> we bring it. People get off that plane and we're all retired and it's like, okay, quick, gotta do some plays, ice my back. And the artistry on that stage is, is some of the most incredible artistry you'll ever see because we're grownups. So what we did with our bodies when we were 25 was, was gorgeous. Like our legs did stuff and our bodies did stuff and our turns and our jumps. It was gorgeous. And we don't have that anymore because we're retired. We're teachers, we're professors, we're people doing different things, trying to hold space in this world for the next generation in different ways. But boy, when we step on stage, whether that's a 45 degree line or a 90 degree line or a 180 degree line, the artistry, the storytelling is the kind of thing that we did not have in our 20s or 30s or you know even the beginning of our 40s. We've got stories to tell and we're able to do that now just because we've been around long enough. Mm, yeah, it makes you think of what a loss it is to the dance community as a whole that they are pushing people out, like the yep. richness. Although I have to say, as an outside observer, the lines look amazing to me <laughs> watching the videos. I mean- and they are, they are, because we're all very, very well-trained. And if we were not very well-trained, we would not physically be able to still dance right now, right? Yep. But we're talking, if you had seen these dancers in our 20s, I mean, you're talking about retired Ailey soloists. You're talking about retired dancing of Harlem soloists. Mm-hmm. I mean, these dancers were the dancers that when you see them, you're like, that was insane. I don't even know what I just experienced. Yeah. But because of that really solid training and that really solid thousands and thousands of times of being on stage, when you're in your fifties, you know, it's like, okay, I can hit that 180 degree line, but I can only hit it once. And if I hit it again, I might not walk tomorrow. So I'm not going to bring my leg up that high, but I'm going to have so much passion dripping through my fingertips and dig down deep from the earth and pull it up and throw it out into the audience that it's like, I didn't need a 180 degree line. I saw the connection with the universe there. Mm. Yeah. When I was watching the performances, one of the things that struck me was the way It works on multiple levels at once. So you've got the projections and the music and poetry and dance. And sometimes the projections have historical information or photographic information. And so you engage the intellectual at the same time as the visceral and emotional. Did you initially conceive it that way as a multimedia event? So I have to say, um, 11 years later, the event is a lot more sophisticated than it was our first year. The premise of the concert is we we're using dance and music to teach and celebrate black history. And so what we do is we honor the lives of about 50 African-American musical artists and civic leaders, right? Through dance and music. And so for example, the pieces are um, James Brown's man's world. We have a Prince solo. We have Bobby Womack, my favorite solo. I'm a little partial. It's actually a duet. It's Dance With My Father by Luther Vandross. And I dance it with my 75-year-old ex-basketball-playing dad. And, um, you know, talk about a choreographic journey. When I first started that piece, it was in my head for three years and I couldn't get it out. And every time I started to try to choreograph it, I ended up in a little ball crying hysterically on the floor. And I was like, I cannot get this piece out. It was really depressing. And then it hit me. I'm so blessed. My dad is here. And so I flipped the switch in my brain and turned it into a duet. 
And then it came through in three hours. And the piece is, is so much fun. And it's, it's melancholic and joyful and beautiful. And at the end, I'm dancing on my dad's feet. And I jump into his arms and he rocks me into a blackout. So originally it was like, okay, we're all going to do a, a solo to honor this person. And then my husband, who's really smart, he's the tech guy. He said, well, how are you going to tie all that together? And I said, I don't know, maybe we'll do a slideshow or something. And he looked at me with his jaw out and he was like, a slideshow, Tanya? Really? <laughs> a slideshow? I was like, yeah, well, we'll figure it out. And he says, and who's going to figure that out? Because he knows I don't do tech. So he's like, just leave me alone. Let me figure something out. He's a tech guy, right? And all of these years, we didn't think he had any artistic bone in him. And I kept saying, everybody's artistic. You just haven't found your medium. Everybody has stuff on the inside that needs to get out, right? And he was like, well, I want to learn how to play the piano. So I started teaching him how to play the piano a little bit. And he's like, how many years is it going to take me to really play a song? And I'm like, well, the thing is you have to, you have to learn some techniques so you can get out what's in your spirit out into the world. And so I thought, well, he's, he's artistic. We just don't know what his medium is. He starts playing with a computer and this brilliant art came out. It was brilliant. And I went, oh my God, that's your medium. Because he already had that, the computer technique down. Mm. So he used his technical skill and pulled out what was in his spirit and was able to get it out through tech. So the first year he put together this really amazing multimedia. And then year after year, it's gotten more and more refined. And so we knew from the beginning there was going to be some sort of tie together. It turns out now that the multimedia is so important. It's actually a scaffolding to the show. So you see all of this history and all of these contributions of Lena Horne, of Ray Charles, of Aretha Franklin, people that made an impact on this world in a time period where we were not seen or heard or respected. I mean, come on, Aretha was singing in the height of segregation and Jim Crow. Yeah. And yet the respect that woman, <laughs> respect she commanded and the joy she brought us and the pride she gave us, our community needs to see that. We need to experience that. And so what I say is with the scaffolding of multimedia, with the photos, with the videos, with the quotes of their lives, what they've done to push the community forward, what they've done to impact the fabric of society, what they've done to, to impact the whole world, experiencing that in a visual, in dance, in photos, in music, all of it together, it creates, like you said, this, this well-rounded, visceral experience, and it's impactful, and it changes lives. I remember the first year, I'm going to say the second year we did it, because we had gotten better at it. We were in a theater, and there were three-year-old children that were rocking out in their seats. Then we have the little ladies with the church hats. And their hands are up over their head and they're swaying like they're in church. And then the teenagers actually stop texting. Then you have people that are completely from different backgrounds. So there's women from Alamo that are sitting there in their pearls. And then you've got young men from West Oakland that are sagging and they're sitting next to each other. And they're talking to each other. And they're laughing and they're comparing stories. And then we see random people hugging in the audience. And we thought, 
what did we just do? Right? Using the arts for self-empowerment and joy and resistance and creating bridges cross-culturally, intergenerationally, cross-class. Hopefully we are using the arts for revolution. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you have a part of your mission as a company that involves bringing in kids and also yeah. bringing in a wide community, a diverse, yeah. economically diverse community. Exactly. Exactly. So I think the arts should absolutely be accessible to everybody and it should be relevant to everybody. And I think what happens in this country, very often we have this kind of like, hey, we're doing high art, right? And there's so many barriers to entry. Oh, you, you don't have the right clothes. Oh, you don't have the right hairstyle. Oh, you live on the other side of town and you can't afford the bus fare to get there. You know, to this day, not now, we're under COVID, but you know, six months ago, my husband and I walk into a theater and the ushers beeline towards us and go, excuse me, can we help you? Excuse me. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm looking for my, t-. you know, right? There's a lot of access <laughs> issues in the arts world. So I made it a point. This work is about community. This work is about elevating and celebrating and bringing people together and finding our self-empowerment. So why would I create a project that left people out? (laughs) So every year I do this crazy crowdfunding and I basically jack everybody I know and say, you better give me 26 bucks for a kid. You better give me 60 bucks for a kid, right? And we bring 200 kids from all over the Bay Area And they're kids that most of them have never walked into a theater before. And they have their little field trip and they show up and they experience this gorgeous dance with dancers that look like them about socially relevant issues that they get really excited about. They get a backstage tour where they get to look up and see the ropes and see the lights. They feel really cool standing on the stage. They take dance classes on the stage where the performance happens. We have lunch for them. They leave with a Black history bio. So they have something tangible to go home with. And I get cards from kids a year, two years later that just blow me away. You know, producing art is really hard. It's really painful. It's really expensive. And there's honestly not very much support And some days I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Oh my God, I think I'm going to die. And I read one of these kids cards and I'm like, okay, this is why I'm doing this. So we bring kids to the show. And then the rest of the year, we go into neighborhoods that usually don't have access to the arts or wellness programs. And I teach dance, dance with literacy, which means it could be dance with poetry or dance with black history. I teach fall prevention for seniors and Pilates for back and joint pain. So the idea is let's remove these barriers and get arts and wellness into our communities. And it's really powerful. And every day I'm like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing in this world. Taking all of my experiences as an artist, as someone who's figured out how to get people out of pain, year after year, I had this, you know, putting this in quotes, highly successful business And I had a brick and mortar for 12 years and I had a three month waiting list to get in. And I got lots of referrals from doctors and PTs and everybody else. And I would go back to the community on nights and weekends because I was like, folks that can't afford access to this 
still need this work. They're walking around with horrific back pain, with no access to health insurance. There's no arts in the schools. On top of all of the other real life stuff, the stuff I grew up with, no electricity, no running water, no food. So my expertise is arts and my expertise is wellness. How do I use my skills to uplift and empower and help bring more resiliency and more joy and more self-determination into our communities? I used to go back on nights and weekends. And then I got to a certain point when the political tide got really loud about four or five years ago. And one too many clients walked in and said to me, that's Sandra Bland. She just had a big mouth. If she kept her mouth shut, that wouldn't have happened to her. And I thought, I need to be doing this full time with people that don't have access. And so close my studio. People are like, are you crazy? You have a successful business. You don't do that. Sell it. I'm like, nope, nobody's messing up my name. <laughs> like I got five-star Yelp reviews. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with this name, but I know I'm not done. I'm keeping my machines. I'm keeping my name. I'm keeping my Yelp reviews. So I closed and I went back into the community full-time. And so full-time I'm teaching arts and wellness. These are all free programs. And then we do the Juneteenth celebration, um, which is our big annual concert. This year we pivoted online virtually. That was crazy, but it was nice because people that normally can't see it got to see it. And right now I'm in the process and I've been working towards this for a while. I'm doing this brainstorming of how to raise funds to start this program that's going to be transformational. It's an arts and wellness access program where folks from San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, Antioch, Pittsburgh, Bay Point will come to learn to be Pilates teachers and arts educators. And it's going to be a two-year program where people, everybody's going to get mental health counseling, financial literacy classes, nutrition classes, including we're going to go grocery shopping and learn how to create um, healthy eating options, cooking classes, and then internship program where folks have to do a few hundred teaching hours. So those few hundred teaching hours, this is the fundraising piece. I've got to find money to actually pay those people. So they go back into the community. So suddenly we've got 2000 community classes in the jails, in the senior centers, Um, dealing with Black infant health. And all of these teachers that I've trained are being paid their student teaching hours to fulfill those hours and get those skills back into the community. And then they test out. And most people don't know this, but Pilates teachers make between 60, 60, $65,000 a year in a studio. You go out on your own, your own clientele, you make $100,000, a year in the Bay Area. Mm. So with the average Black family in San Francisco making $23,000 a year, $65,000 or $100,000 is a lot of money. And so this is a way of getting arts. This is the way of getting wellness services and financial stability into communities, which will stave off gentrification and displacement. And then getting a whole bunch of teachers in that can help get people out of back pain, that can expose young people and seniors to the arts Mm. uh, to get our seniors stable and on their feet and not falling down. So I'm really excited about it. That's a huge, gorgeous vision. You know, it's striking me when you were talking about why artists are good at things and the qualities that I think courage and this ability. What's that? Insanity. (laughs) Insanity. (laughs) But 
also a breadth of vision and a willingness to say yes before you know how. You're not knowing how every I is going to get dotted net, but you're saying yes first and figuring out the rest later. And then you're a creative, resourceful being. I will figure it out. Yeah. The scope of it is incredible. All stuff I've done before, I've already been doing it, but it's going to be scaled and more comprehensive now. And it's going to be hard, but I'm up for it. (laughs) Super exciting. (laughs) I don't do anything easy. Nothing is easy. That would be no fun, right? If you're going to make change, you have to push uphill, Mm. right? Yeah. Because everything is flowing in one direction. And I'm sorry, the direction of the river, the direction of the stream is inequity and injustice. So if you're going to actually change the direction towards justice, towards equity, towards access, towards us all having an equal shot, you got to push, you got to push, push upstream, push up the hill. <laughs> I'm not scared. I'm, I'm tired, but I'm not scared. Mm. I know it needs to be done. I just got to push. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of revolution, we are at this incredible historical moment, right? Where on the one hand, we have, we have this global pandemic, which is killing people and killing people of color disproportionately. On the other hand, we've had this mass protest that I think has woken up some non-Black people for the first time to the reality of what it's been like for Black people in this country. So it feels like a moment of richness in certain ways. Do you feel optimistic right now about what can happen in this moment? Is, or is it a mixture of, well, what do you think about this moment? It's a really loaded question. So I'm going to talk in circles a little bit, but I'll eventually get there. So first of all, COVID, like we knew it was about to hit the fan, right? Because mm-hmm. the disparities and the distress that black and brown people are living in on moss in this country is criminal. And we've been saying we need, we need our allies to actually step up and take action because we've been yelling about this stuff for 400 years. And if we could have ended it, we would have ended it 400 years ago. We would have ended it 50 years ago. It'd be ended now, right? Mm-hmm. So me personally, I'm going to say I'm cautiously, and I'm not going to use the word hopeful, because I think in this country, there's been too many times where collectively African-Americans have gotten our hopes up and we were deeply disappointed. It makes it really hard to trust That said, there's something happening right now that has never happened in 400 years. Um, I actually have talked to my parents about this a lot. My parents grew up under Jim Crow and the civil rights movement later. And about four years ago, when a certain person in power started stacking the Supreme Court in a terrifying way, I was like, dad, no, he grew up in Texas. He grew up under Jim Crow. He couldn't vote the whole bit. And I was like, daddy, how are you dealing with this? Like, I feel like we're moving backward. And he kind of smirked and he said, the long arm of history, baby, bends towards justice. And I said, I know, daddy, but if he stacks the Supreme Court, we're screwed for the next 40 years. And he smirked and he said, the long arm of history bends towards justice. And I said, but daddy, I feel like like we've got two steps forward, but now we're back. And, And he said, Every generation is better than the one before. 
And he says, as long as each generation is better, we're moving in the right direction. What we're dealing with right now, what your generation is dealing with right now, I promise this is not as bad as it was in the 50s. Like, what did he see in Texas in the 50s? He said, my generation was not as bad as my mother's generation. And my mother's generation was not as bad as, talking from his perspective, my grandmother's generation. And my grandmother was a slave. I was like, all right, dad. And talking to my mom recently, I said, mommy, what do you think about this? And he said, she said, you know, what's really, what's really interesting and what makes me hopeful is in the 60s, it was black people protesting and old Jewish people protesting along our sides. And what we're seeing now for the first time is young white people out there. Thousands and thousands and thousands of kids are out there. That is something new that's never happened. Mm. My dad has always said to me, baby, always find a way to find joy. Don't ever let anybody take your joy away from you. That joy is revolutionary. Beautiful. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) My dad was one of those old Jewish people. (laughs) Hey, dad. (laughs) Thank you, dad. (laughs) Troublemakers. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. You're so welcome. An amazing, inspiring conversation. And it's, I just really appreciate and support everything you're doing to bring forward a better world for all of us. For all all of us. Because we are interconnected. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm singing for the land. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Off Leash Arts. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please join me again next time for more conversations with inspiring artists about their journeys with creativity. Meanwhile, take good care of yourself and each other, stay safe, and stay off leash.